if you're stuck inside of a building a lot of times, you don't have proper molecular filtration or good ventilation. You know, when you're tired throughout the day, it's not because you were streaming your Netflix show on repeat. A lot of times it can be the chemicals that are inside your space. Hello there and welcome to Let's Talk Clean Air, our regular look at how clean air can affect the quality process for you and the workplace. On this episode, we're finding out about odours, gases and toxins in the air and how to deal with them. My name is Dusty Rhodes and joining me to explain more about this is Trent Thiel from Camphill USA. Trent is an industry expert and an educator for molecular filtration. And with over 150 million registered chemicals in the world, that is quite an area that he covers. So let's get in and find out more about molecular filtration with Trent. Trent, you're very passionate about this whole area. Uh, Tell me why. Yeah, so it's one of those things that. Um, so I've been with Campville for about eight years, and before I came on with them, I was I was more involved in the industrial process gases. Um, you know, and, and that's kind of an area that people understand. There's a, there's industrial gases that are there, and you don't really understand about all the you know, how all of those gases can actually impact the the people the environment and other processes and equipment around them, right? So it, it was one of those things that I didn't really understand until I really got into the business. And then once you understand about how this impacts, not only, you know, when you get outside of the industrial aspect of it, you know, we're talking about our, our families, our children that are in schools, um, that are in office buildings, things of that nature, and really understanding and being able to educate about how these, we're all familiar with particulate matter, right? We all have particulate filters in our home. We understand particulate matter. It's one of those things that for, for all intents and purposes, you can touch it. You can, you can see it, right? With molecular contaminants, it's kind of out of sight and out of mind. And so people don't really pay attention to it until it's a problem. And so for me as an educator, it's really, it's really important to to make sure that other people have awareness around, around that and understand how it really does impact our daily lives. And so it's something that I have become passionate about. Um, and, uh, and it's important, you know, to be passionate about what you do, uh, cause, uh, and that way you, you can learn more every day. I mean, as you mentioned, there's a, over 150 million registered chemicals. Well, actually now, Dusty, that was, that was probably from one of my old, my old, uh, excerpts that, that you took from somewhere, but it's actually over 252 million registered chemicals now. Um, yeah. And when I first started with Camphill, uh, there was actually only 73 million registered chemicals. So in eight years, that number is, is more than is more than tripled. So it's pretty incredible. And are a lot of these chemicals, I mean, are they all particulates? Are they all molecular? Is it a combination? Yeah. So it's a, com- I mean, you know, it could be a combination. You have a service called chemical abstract services. So every, every chemical out there has a cast number, right? When you look at the M- MSDR, or I guess the safety data sheet now is what we call them. Um, you can see a cast number associated with that. And some of them have, uh, have other cast numbers associated with them as well, because different chemicals can make up, um, a combination or a new, a new chemical compound, right? So, a lot of them are derivations of each other. There's minerals, different polymers, um, you know, even some salts and things like that, you know, alloys. Um, and a lot of those aren't molecular contaminants because they would be considered particulate. But for the most part, you know, there's, there are, um, you know, there's over 252 million registered, you know, cast numbers, I should say, out there. The first official question I wanted to ask you was, what is an airborne molecular contamination? Yeah. So what you would have first and foremost, so an airborne molecular contaminant, you have, we're talking about airborne contaminants in general, right? So as I mentioned, you have particulate matter and then you have molecular contaminants. So um, let's, I, I always like to start with, with things that people can wrap their minds around. Again, the particulate matter, right? So you've got, uh, according to, you know, the ISO 
uh, you know, not to throw numbers around, but ISO um, 16890, you've got four different particulate categories from sizes of particulate. You have coarse particulates, which would be those particulates from 0.3 to 10 microns. You would have um, PM10, which would be from 0.3 to 10 microns. Then you'd have um, PM2.5, which is really what we care about from entering our homes and office buildings and schools, which is uh, 0.3 to 2.5 microns. And then you have PM1, which is 0.3 to 1 microns. And those are the things we care about in healthcare environments and uh, surgical suites, right? When somebody's being operated on, you don't want to have any type of contaminant that could potentially um, get into that space. Um, and, and so, and then once you get past that is where HEPA filtration, a true high efficiency, uh, particulate arrestance would come into play, mm. which would be where you get efficiencies of 0.3 micron particulate. Um, and so those are, and, and so when you get into an airborne molecular contaminant, you're talking about a individual molecule that is actually, uh, could be a hundred to a thousand times smaller than those 0.3 micron particulates you're removing with the HEPA filter. Okay, so all the numbers that you've been describing so far, <laughs> you're, you're essentially saying that they're getting smaller and smaller. 100%, yeah. So you're talking about stuff that, you know, we're worried about the PM1 is that's what we worry about when people are lying cut open on an operating theater. We make, need to make sure. But right. what you're concerned with, which is molecular, is a thousand times smaller. Can be, yes, sir. Yeah. Wow. Right. That's kind of mind blowing. What what are the most common contaminants then that we see? So a lot of questions you're going to ask me. I'm going to say it depends. Um, will be <laughs> how, how I first how I first uh, will answer you um, because it does right. It depends on where you are. Because if if I'm at let's say that I'm at a petrochemical refinery, right, versus if I'm at your daughter's school. The, con- the contaminants I care about are going to be completely different, right? <laughs> okay. So, um, so again, what I always like to do is I like to start with with things that majority of your listeners would probably want, would probably gravitate to, which would be what we would consider um, general indoor air quality, right? Um, IAQ. We hear that term a lot. Stands for indoor air quality. And so, um, when and speaking for general IAQ, really what you care about is you have to look at your indoor environment and your external environment. So, from the external environment, what you'd really care about are things. Um, the, there's three primary contaminants um, that I would say, uh, from, a, from a chemical standpoint, you should be concerned about. Um, the first would be ozone. So, ground level ozone. Um, ground level ozone is generated uh, from UV light essentially reacting with um, exhaust from industrial processes and from vehicles. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about clean air vehicles and things like that, the reason we, we push that so hard is because without without a lot of the, the emissions from these vehicles, you wouldn't be getting that ground level ozone because the UV wouldn't be reacting with any of those chemicals. And the same thing with factories, right? Mm. SO2, so sulfur dioxide that would be coming out of that would be coming out of factories also can react with UV light and generate ground level ozone. So when you have things like um like you know, and, and from the cars you have things like BTEX, you might have heard that acronym before. It stands for benzene, toluene, ethyl benzene, xylene, um, which are all which are, you know, again, those are the kind of the chemicals that we look at from a um a, a TVOC, total VOC standpoint from the exhaust of these vehicles. That's kind of what we look at. Um and toluene is used as a surrogate gas many times for simulating the impact that vehicle exhaust can have on an environment. So the three things you should be concerned about, again, all those chemicals I just mentioned, you can drum it down to three things, which would be ozone, nitrogen dioxide, and sulfur dioxide. Nitrogen dioxide is 
primarily going to come from diesel fumes. Um, and, you know, I should say it's oxides of nitrogen. So you can get some, you know, nitrous oxide, things like that as well, but, or nitric oxide, but, um, you, uh, but yeah, but the main ones are going to be nitrogen dioxide, NO2, uh, sulfur dioxide known as SO2, and then ozone, which is known as O3. And that's from a- outside air. Now, I know, um, I know you're going to say it depends. <laughs> yeah. But sure. what kind of effects do those nasty things have on us little human beings? Sure. Yeah. So you've got, um, you know, the main thing that people identify when they say, oh, I need a, I need a molecular filter. Most, most people think, um, you know, most people would say, oh, I need a carbon filter, but we can talk about the difference between a carbon filter and a molecular filter, um, here in a, in a couple minutes. But, um, the main, I, the main contaminant or the main reason people think they need molecular filtration would be odors, um, you know, smells. Uh, but the primary reason people need molecular filtration and may not realize it is for irritants. So, ozone and nitrogen dioxide for example ozone can have extremely detrimental effects on your lungs um you know there was a lot of you know several years ago there was a lot of ozone generators inside of inside of buildings inside of homes and then we found that yes ozone is a very good oxidizer um but it also will turn your lungs to leather and so it, it can actually start impacting your lung health um and can cause further you know those that have respiratory issues you can have further lung damage um so it's really just protecting your, your pulmonary tract. Um, nitrogen dioxide, while it also can impact your lungs, can also impact your brain. Um, you know, there's, and it, and it can make you lethargic. Mm. So many times, uh, you know, it can make you, it can make you lose focus. So if you're stuck inside of a building, a lot of times you don't have proper molecular filtration or better or, or good ventilation. Mm. Um, you know, when you're tired throughout the day, it's not, it's not because you were streaming your your Netflix show, um, you know, on, on repeat for eight hours that night, you know, a lot of times it can be the chemicals that are inside your space, which kind of leads me back to what I was going to talk about the internal contaminants. We talked about 252 million registered chemicals in the world. Um, and you've got, uh, you know, inside of the space, you can have things like, um, cleaning supplies. You can have construction materials, uh, which would have adhesives and different aldehydes and glues that are off-gassing all the time. Um, even clothing, right? The different dyes and pigments and food, one of the biggest contributors, right? So the, the in, indoor environment is always is dynamic and changing constantly depending on what's being brought in, what's being, what's being taken out. Um, and so, you know, to say, to say what are the most common contaminants from inside, I wouldn't be able to, to even, you know, to even venture a guess, you know, I would say it depends on the types of foods you're eating, depends on the material construction materials that have been used inside of your space, the cleaning supplies. So, um, but that's, so I would say irritants as far as its impact on human beings, irritants are the number one reason people should be putting molecular filtration in, but odors are the number one reason people think they need molecular filtration because it's really the only identifier that we have. So we've got, uh, the smell, you've got mm-hmm. irritants, which, which can yep. literally irritate you toxins, uh, which are just poisonous. Yeah, sure. I'm sure many of these things as well can also affect the, uh, the equipment that could be in a, a in a facility. Yeah. Have you come across that? Yeah. So there's four. Yeah, yeah. So there's four, and I should I should have mentioned toxic gases as well. Um, you know, but I was I was still thinking about the general IAQ, and and typically you're not going to find toxic gases in general IAQ. Many times it's going to be, um, you know, that's going to be more closely related with in military operations, th- things of that nature, right? Where you know that's where our nuclear nuclear applications, where you know where we would have. Um, you know, where, where you've got uh, different types of radioisotopes you're trying to remove, or I guess, you know, you could, but and in any event, the yeah, the fourth category would be um, corrosion control. So you have four reasons people would need molecular filtration, odors, irritants, 
toxic gases and corrosion control for the protection of processes and equipment. You know, and that's really why a petrochemical facility would have would have it, pulp and paper facility, you know, metal refining for precious metals, microelectronics is probably the, one of the biggest ones that's out there that that has um, very specific needs for the different types of uh, of corrosive chemicals that would that would impact their um, that would impact their uh, their processes and and uh, and product. Now, I'm not an expert in the area, which is why we have you. When it comes to uh, particulates, I can understand how a filter is able to trap these things and to stop it coming in through through the facility. Sure. But if molecular is so small, yeah. how do you how do you control that with a filter? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but but uh, so there's two types of there's two types of mechanisms that you would use to remove a molecular contaminant, um, which is also important to understand why you need molecular contamination um, control. So it would be, you know, what is the what is the purpose, right? Is it protection of humans? What are you protecting those humans from? Is it protection of a process or equipment? What are you trying to protect them from? So when you look at all these different chemicals that are out there, Dusty, what you have are these chemicals have a molecular weight, they've got a vapor pressure, and they've got a boiling point. So the lower the molecular weight and the lower the boiling point, and the higher the vapor pressure makes it tougher to capture, right? So those are really fast molecules, right? They're very, they're, you know, they're, they're very volatile. Um, there's other ones that are bigger, slower, right? If you think of a molecule being slow. Um, and so that they would be captured by those ones. Uh, 99% of the registered chemicals out there are going to be best removed with physical absorption. So you have chemical absorption and physical absorption. Physical absorption is the most common. When people say, oh, I need a carbon filter, they're most likely talking about for physical absorption. So the way that it works is that if you can imagine you've got kind of a pegboard sitting on your desk there, and all those little peg holes are what in their filtration in the molecular filtration industry we call active sites. And so these active sites have um, intermolecular forces, and these, it's the same way kind of um, a spider climbs up the wall. So every single solid surface on planet Earth has has uh, has intermolecular forces, right? So the the molecules that are end that are on the end of a spider's um, feet or legs, if you will, um, are weak enough to be attracted by those intermolecular forces. But the spider is strong enough to break those weak bonds and move move to wherever it would need to. Um, these molecules aren't looking to break those bonds per se. So what happens is that you have static pressure from a filter, right? So you're forcing that air in through a filter. And then that those contaminants are being being pushed through this porous substrate, um, whether it be a coal type carbon, um, you know, uh, or other organic material like coconut shell, even and wood based carbons. So they're what they're doing is being forced into this activated carbon um, to then react and be held on the surface of each one of those active sites. Um, and so there's a finite number of active sites, though, right? Which is why you can have predictive lifetimes of these of these. Uh, uh, carbon filters. And so that's the first one would be physical absorption. The second one would be for the capture of things like ammonia. Um, it would be for the capture of hydrogen sulfide. It would be, um, you know, things, things like that, that would be, again, have a lower boiling point, a lower, um, a lower molecular weight and or a high, higher vapor pressure. And you have to chemically react with those. So those active sites then, instead of, instead of being open and ready to receive these chemical contaminants, for all intents and purposes, they're actually, you know, just 
it, it's a little more a little more complicated than this, but they're filled that those those active sites are filled with a chemical that will react with that target chemical you're trying to address. So if you have a strong acid, you'd put a strong base on the on the, the surface of that media to neutralize it. Right? So if you have hydrogen sulfide, you would put something like uh, potassium hydroxide on there to be able to essentially render it neutralized. So what you're saying is you've got a carbon filter or some kind of a physical mm -hmm. surface, and it's what you coat the filter with, or the the, the yeah. liquid, shall yeah. I say, that's that's in the sure. in the filter, and that's what's stopping the really tiny molecular uh, contaminants. Absolutely, yeah. And there's different, you know, and there's different types of when you talk about chemical substrates, then you can use like a activated alumina type type uh, substrate, and what we call it is actually it's it's an whether it's activated carbon. Or activated alumina, or different types of uh, different types of base substrates. You, we call that in, um, impregnating um, the media. And so, what what actually happens is that you like so. For example, because what you want to do is you want to get the the most complete impregnation of that media, so that you can because this this media is extremely porous, right? So if the molecule progresses through, you know, it goes past. Okay, that active site's taken up. That active site's taken up. As it progresses through the filter, you want to make sure that you have as much time for it to react with those different with those different active sites, so that you can have a higher removal efficiency. Um, you know, again, I'm I'm really simplifying a lot of this, but um, but that's kind of the, you know when when you think about it, just think about that pegboard. Pegboards either either empty and ready to receive heavy, you know, slow molecules, or it's filled with a chemical to react with with the targeted chemical that's tough to capture. For some reason, I get the feeling that the molecular uh, are more complicated or don't last as long. How do they compare with carbon Correct. filters? How often would you have to so, change them? I know, yes. I know that depends, well, but give, give me an idea. Yeah, no, and actually, so yeah, I thought you were going to say to, to particulate filters. Mm. A molecular filter most likely will not last as long as a particulate filter. Okay. But, you know, to say a carbon filter versus, so I, I guess, how do I answer that? Um, there's, it does depend, right? So let's, so you have, let's say that many times you're not going to need I need a filter just for hydrogen sulfide. You may need a filter that's also going to address ozone, hmm. right? You also may you may need a filter that's going to address toluene or benzene or, you know, again, one, one of the other 99% of those 252 million chemicals out there, right? Um, and so that's what you need, physical absorption and chemical absorption in the same filter. So is that what you're asking? Do physical absorptive medias and chemical absorptive medias, do they, do they um, expire at different times? Is that what you're asking? That's a, that kind of, yes. Okay. Okay. And yeah, and they, and they would. Um, and so unfortunately, most times when people say, Hey, I, you know, I want to address as much of this stuff as possible coming in from outside air. Okay, fine. And what they'll do is they'll take a chemical impregnated media and they'll take a physical absorptive media like carbon and blend it together in one unit. Um, and while that sounds great, when it passes through and, in, in um, in a single pass from outside air, you only have one chance to capture it. So you've dedicated 50% of your filter to a media that's only going to react with less than 1% of those outside air contaminants, right? So what's the solution? So yeah, so the solution, the best solution, and, and again, I'm not saying I have nothing problem, I have no problem with blending the medias. An advantage would be it takes up less space, less initial cost. Um, but the best solution would be you take a physical absorptive media and a chemical absorptive media, and you layer them. 
right? So you'd have a stage of physical absorptive media, a stage of, of um, chemical absorptive media. And then, and then that way you can test them individually and see what the remaining lifetime is of each of those. And so you're not wasting any of that, any of that media. You're not wasting your money. So from an initial cost, yeah, blending them together in a, in a single stage to address, you know, whatever you want to remove sounds like a good idea, right? Um, but from a total cost of ownership perspective, it's always better to have two stages if you can afford the space. Going from tiny molecular scale sure. to these filters, how big an operation can they work in? Right? <laughs> what, what kind of scale can the filter solutions be deployed okay. in? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, so the way that they're, uh, it could be anything from like, let's say, Again, let's start with, with things that people can understand, right? Let's start with something that we can actually wrap our minds around to start with. Schools, offices. So you'd use what we call an embedded media filter. Um, so it could, be, it could look just like a filter that's actually in your, um, that's in your HVAC unit at home, right? Just something you'd buy at the hardware store. And what's actually, what there's actually is inside of that is embedded um, molecular media. Most cases, activated carbon um, that would be able to provide you... Um, okay removal efficiency for like concentrations of gases in your home so um then we also have more advanced embedded media filters for the healthcare industry right that would be a combination of um pm uh, of pm1 filtration and embedded molecular media to be able to address things like ozone at over 90 percent removal efficiency um, so that's kind of a compact one that you would, that you could put in just for general HVAC commercial air application. Then you move into what we would consider a you know light process, for example, to heavy industrial. Light process could be something like um, in vitro fertilization, um, where you would have uh, where you would want to have more targeted. Uh, you would want to have more targeted molecular contamination control, and so you would take a shell. For example, you know, it could look, it could be a box, it could be a cylinder, it could be different, a panel, it could be different configurations depending on the space that you have, um, you know, and your budget and the removal efficiencies that you want to maintain. And you fill those different casings with particular um, molecular medias to be able to address the contaminants that you want to address. So, you know, this could be for general manufacturing labs. For example, have very specific. You know, you'd be looking at very, you know, a couple different types of gases that they'd want to remove, um, and then you know, even corrosion control. For example, like a uh, a refinery, they have these these um, motor control centers, right? The the control room, the the brains of the entire operation of a refinery. They want to protect that from the the printed circuit boards and the computers um, getting corroded. And so um, you would have, you know, again, you would have a more industrial solution. So you can have something that would, that could be several thousand pounds of media. So I would say from, uh, you know, progressing in, in what we just talked about, think about it in, in um, I should probably speak in kilograms as well. But so think about it in terms of five, five kilograms, Okay. you know, for the small scale, you know, in a, in a, in a you know, one single that, opening. That's about 10 pounds, I think, 50, is it? Yeah, about ten pounds. Yeah, yep. to, to let's call it fifty kg for for a, a light process solution. You know, it could be you know in the in the in the hundreds of uh, you know in the hundreds of pounds, and then finally you would have five hundred kg or more for thousands of pounds wow. of media in a solution. So a big box that you would put. You know, because let's say you got a 
you know, you've got like a, a polyurethane foam manufacturer, right? You know, foam mattresses, for example, they put out a lot of, uh, a, a lot of contaminants. Hmm. And so for uh, protecting the environment and those, those people around them, they have to put large industrial scrubbers out there to be able to have high removal efficiencies for a long period of time. So it can be done on a, on a big scale. How do you know if the, if the solution is working? Sure. Yeah. Good question. Um, you do air sampling, obviously, um, you know, uh, upstream and or downstream. That's going to, yeah, and there's, there's real time monitors for that that are out there. Um, you can also, uh, we have, you know, Campfield ourselves have, even before you purchase a solution, there's the ability to be able to do, use simulation software to be able to look at different absorption theories and really look at the concentrations of the gases and understand how they, you know, the, and the contact time. Meaning how long the, you know, when you look at the velocity of the air passing through that design you've made, whether it be through hundreds of pounds of media, thousands of pounds of media, um, you know, how long it's going to be in contact to be able to see what the initial lifetime would be. But then nothing's as good as, as taking a sample of your media, sending it back to the manufacturer, which you purchased it from, um, and letting them sample the media to be able to see what the remaining life is. So you'll be able, what essentially what they're doing is seeing how many more, you know, how many of those peg holes do you have left that are open is what you're looking for. So you would have to do that with media sampling. And there's different types of, obviously with the different types of media, mm. there's different types of media sampling that has mm. to take place. And that gives you a much better idea then of uh, when you should change the filters. 100%. Yep. Trent, you make all of this sound absolutely amazing and you've explained it so well and, and, and I understand it. And thank you so very much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about this, just follow the links in the show notes. You'll find them in the description of the podcast on your phone or whichever device you're listening to us on. They include links and contact details for Trent and anything else that you might need uh, to get more information. Our podcast today was produced by Camphill, a world leader in the development of production of air filters and clean air solutions. To stay up to date on how clean air can affect the quality process for you and your workplace, do click follow so that you get our next podcast automatically on your phone or whatever you're listening to us on. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, thank you so much for listening and take care.